Welcome to Not Your Boyfriend Sports Show. I'm Bryn. And I'm Maeve. And this week on the show, Abby Wambach retires from soccer while the NWHL is just getting on its feet. Plus, as baseball wraps up with the World Series, the NBA starts a new season. For our feature this week, we're thrilled to welcome to the show Nicole Auerbach, college football and basketball reporter for USA Today and analyst for the Big Ten Network. We'll talk with her about all things college football. And then it's another fierce lady. Okay, so Bryn, start us off this week in sports. What's been going on? So this is a bit of a bittersweet one to start with, but after 15 years, Abby Wambach is hanging up her cleats. Um, She's the leading goal scorer in international soccer that's either men's or women's with 184 goals. She's a two-time Olympian and now a World Cup winner after the summer's performance, which really exemplified her leadership on the team. She didn't start in all the matches, but she was definitely the heart and soul of the team, bridging the famous 1999 squad. So if you think of Mia Hamm, Brandi Chastain, Julie Foudy, all of those wonderful ladies, Um, and then linking with the modern era of women's soccer, you know, your Alex Morgan, Hope Solo crew. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So her last game is going to be on December 16th. And um, from Not Your Boyfriend Sports Show, Abby, just know that you are going to be sorely, sorely missed, but your impact on this sport will never be forgotten, and we can't wait to see what you do next. Uh, Hats off to Abby Wambach, truly one of the greats. Um, But, you know, just as some things wind down, other things are just getting started, and the National Women's Hockey League had its first set of games on October 11th. And as listeners may recall from our earlier episode, the league is the first professional women's hockey league in the U.S., and it will actually pay its players, which is what's really distinguishing it from the Canadian Women's League. And (laughs) Yeah, money's good. Um, So far, the Boston Pride and the Connecticut Whale, and that's one whale, not multiple. um, It's like the Stanford Cardinal. (laughs) I don't know. Why wouldn't you be multiple whales or cardinals? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> pride is more of a amorphous idea, whereas a whale is one particular animal. But <laughs> oh my god! Okay, okay. <laughs> we digress. <laughs> um, anyway, the Boston Pride and the Connecticut Whale are both undefeated. They have three wins each, and this seems funny for a four-team league, but it's because they haven't played each other yet, and they will not until November 29th. So we're all rooting for women's hockey, and you should go check out, check it out and find out more at nwhl.co, and that's .co and not .com. So really pay attention to those final letters with the NWHL. So they can pay the players, but they couldn't buy the .com <laughs> URL. You gotta, you gotta invest wisely, Bryn. They're a startup. Okay. All right. All right. I'm fine with that. <laughs> And then over to baseball, we're in the World Series, yeah? Yes. So we're in the midst of it. The New York Mets are facing off versus the Kansas City Royals. And the Mets haven't won since 2000. And there was a really interesting article by uh, the NPR put out. And it was arguing that some of the Mets' success this season might be due to Wall Street criminals... Namely, Bernie Madoff, because the owners of the Mets apparently had him handling their investments, and they obviously lost a lot of money when it was exposed that Madoff was running a Ponzi scheme. 
However, the silver lining is that it forced Mets management to rethink their approach to their roster and to more economically spend their funds. So basically their approach beforehand had been to draft a lot of big time free agents, but um, they cut down on that and really built their team around a lot of young players really drawing from their minor league system. But then over to the Royals, they were beaten last in last year's World Series by the San Francisco Giants, but they are definitely having something of a renaissance after being absent from the World Series for 29 seasons before last year's appearance. Wow. However, surprisingly, only about half of their roster from last year are holdovers, and much of their core as well are new and relatively young guys. So you may have noticed that we're leaving some specifics of the series purposely vague. <laughs> Um, basically because it could all end tonight or it will probably most definitely all end before this episode goes live on Thursday. So we'll update you later, but for now, no specifics. So listeners can take a Google when you're listening and figure out who won the series. Just to break in with a little editor's note here, the World Series ended up coming to a conclusion that very night on Sunday, with the Royals winning 7-2 in Game 5, marking their first World Series win in 30 years. So congratulations to the Royals, and now back to the show. In case you didn't have enough sports to watch with the World Series, the NFL, college football, now the NBA is back in, se- in season. So Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors are trying to retain their status as champions, while LeBron and the Cleveland-, Cleveland Cavaliers are coming back with a vengeance and hopefully fewer injured players this time. Um, <laughs> though I personally think that LeBron may be cursed and will never bring home a trophy for Cleveland because he made a deal with the devil to win in Miami. But, you know, you can choose to be superstitious or not. I'm just saying. Well, as someone from Boston, I take sports curses very seriously. And (laughs) it can take lifetimes for those curses to reverse. So watch out, LeBron. You dance with the devil and you see what you get. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay, so let's take a little bit of a break and we'll come back and talk college football with the amazing Nicole Auerbach. She's incredible. I can't wait. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are going to take a whirlwind tour through college football. First, get schooled on some of the basics, but then we'll also dig deeper into some of its most famed issues and controversies. And to help us along the way, please give a big NYBF Sports Show welcome to Nicole Auerbach. So to fill in our listeners, Nicole, you're a reporter for USA Today covering college football and basketball, and you're also an analyst for the Big Ten Network. And uh, you not only cover the day in, day out of college sports, but you've also covered the Olympics and written some really nice in-depth pieces that showcase kind of the people behind the players in a really humanizing way. And perhaps most importantly, you're a Michigan alum. So welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me in a very nice introduction. I didn't (laughs) sometimes forget I do some of these things like the Olympics. (laughs) We've been stalking you online, so you can't hide forever. (laughs) All right. Well, let's just start off really nice and basic. For our listeners out there who are not so familiar with college football, 
let's have you tell them a little bit about the differences between conferences, why the conferences might be set up that way, and maybe a brief reputation of each of the conferences. Yeah, well, basically in the last two years, things have shifted a little bit just because of the four-team college football playoff. There are definitely more of a distinction between the haves and have-nots with some of these schools and coaches being paid millions and millions of dollars (laughs) and incredible resources. And so now there's the Power Five conferences and then the Group of Five conferences and then everybody else. So the Power Five are kind of obviously the ones with the most power, with the most money. Um, So that'll be... That'll be the SEC, the Big 12, Big 10, Pac-12, and the ACC. And then the group of five is kind of like that next tier. There are the teams that aren't really – it would take kind of a miracle for, for one of those two – a team from that area to make the four-team playoff just the way it's set up. It's not really set up for that. That's like the American, which used to be – it has the remnants of the old Big East. Um, you've got the Mountain West. Teams and conferences of that – caliber in that level and then they're just kind of all over the place um but i think the power five are the ones that obviously most people are familiar with the sec um you know is generally considered the toughest conference for college football and the big 12 has recently been getting you know some well some snark essentially because <laughs> they don't have a conference championship game because you have to have 12 members oh so first of all that's the confusing part the big 12 has 10 teams and the big 10 has 14 teams so <laughs> math is not math is not necessarily a strong suit in college football. But so basically the Big Twelve last year was shut out of the playoff basically because it didn't have a championship game, which the committee said, you know, is one more data point to consider. And again, this year it kind of looks like they might beat each other up and they might also end up out of the playoff again. Then you've got so the Big Ten, obviously Michigan, Ohio State, obviously we're we're all familiar with with the Big Ten. The the East division is by far the stronger division. That's the Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State, Penn State side. So you've got great coaches, obviously, Urban Meyer, Jim Harbaugh, Mark D'Antonio. Uh, and then the Pac-12, I love the Pac-12, but most people do not stay up late enough to watch the Pac-12 on Saturday nights, sadly, um, unless you're a little bit of an insomniac, which I am, so it sort of works together. Um, and I think that's kind of around, oh, ACC, well, um, Clemson <laughs> it is doesn't awesome. end, all but, of these conferences. <laughs> yeah, there are so many teams, um, and they all think they should be in the playoff, this is why it's a long-winded conversation, but yeah, so Clemson is the best team in the ACC this year. They look like they could go undefeated throughout the regular season in the ACC championship game. And Florida State kind of got knocked off its throne for the first time, um, losing in ridiculous fashion. Blocked field goal return for a touchdown by Georgia Tech a couple yeah, weeks that ago. Was crazy. It was insane. And we've had some like really insane finishes in college football this year. So even just last night with the with the Miami and all the lateral passes. Yeah, eight laterals and definitely some questionable missed penalties on that play. But it was <laughs> always, always. <laughs> I feel like ridiculous plays, even if there are penalties, like should still be. We should still need to acknowledge the ridiculous. Kind <laughs> yes. of. There's the rundown of kind of the conferences and what to know about each one. Was that was perfect. Yeah. And you kind of touched on our next question, which is about playoffs for college football. And this is a new change. It changed from the BCS system of bowl games into this new playoff scenario. So can you just run us through that quickly and sort of tell us, are people happy with this change? Like, do you think it's more fair or are people 
wanting to switch back to the BCS system as it was. Well, definitely no one wants to switch back to the BCS. Uh, I think <laughs> what people are unhappy about is that that it's only four teams. They, there's a lot. There's big push from coaches and from certain administrators um, for wanting an eight-team playoff because, like I had mentioned, there's five Power Five conferences. So, assuming yeah. you know in a regular year, one of these powerful leagues is left out of the revenue and the marketing and the showcase and the chance for a championship every single year, and also, like yeah. I'd mentioned, some of that second tier, the group of five teams like a Memphis, uh, Houston, uh, Boise State, etc. That group, it, it's like basically nearly impossible to get into the four-team playoff because that would mean two Power Five leagues are out. So. There's definitely, you know, a lot of feeling across the sport that, you know, the playoff will expand eventually. Um, mm -hmm. No one knows exactly how long. So everyone sort of felt that the four-team playoff with a selection committee like college basketball uses to select the NCAA tournament would, would really benefit the sport and also make it, like you guys said, more fair. Obviously, the decision between, like, the fourth team that gets in and the fifth team that's left out is yeah. huge. And it's not quite like the NCAA tournament where, you know, they're making decisions on bubble teams that are all pretty flawed. You know, last year, it sort of couldn't have worked out any better that Ohio State was the fourth selection. It was controversial because people thought TCU or Baylor had a shot. And then the fat team who they picked and included and basically said, we think they are a national championship contender, uh, ends up winning the whole thing. So if you didn't have a four-team playoff, Ohio State would not have been anywhere near the playoff picture because they had that loss. So, you know, last year it probably would have been Florida State, Alabama, uh, just the way, you know, if the BCS had still been around. So instead we got the two other teams who seemed very deserving of getting to the championship in Oregon and, and Ohio State. It just sort of validated the idea of a playoff where, you know, anything can happen, but you have to expand the fields a little bit so that you're really going to get the best teams in the championship game and the best team to win it all. So it was a really, really successful first year. Um, and I think that it's only going to get more and more popular, more successful as we move forward. And I think that we will see an expansion. It's just unclear of how many years it'll take until we see that. Yeah, I think it's, yeah. I mean, you brought up the, the NCAA basketball bracket. And I just think it's such a funny sort of comparison that with March Madness, like the whole month is branded. There are play-in games just to get to the bracket. And then you have to winnow down over weeks and weeks and then football, it's like four teams and that's it. So I feel like the NCAA works in mysterious ways. Yes, it does. It does. All right. Well, so another major issue now that we've sort of covered the terrain of what the conferences are and what the playoffs look like, I'd say that the thing that comes most to mind when talking about college sports is the issue of student athletes. And we just wanted to get your take on the student athlete debate. Um, as somebody who covers college sports and is around these athletes, around these coaches, do you think that athletes should get paid? Do you think that they really are students first and athletes second? And, and what's your general take on the student-athlete situation? Well, I definitely don't think that they're students first um, because then you would not see midweek volleyball matches that are you know, cross-country flights for teams in different, you know, in the conference yeah. or whatever. You know, I, I guess I have a more nuanced take on this than some. There's definitely some very vocal people who believe athletes should be paid. But my issue is just I don't know how you set up a system that is fair and won't be exploited to pay mm -hmm. them. You know, there's a lot of people who believe, considering how much debt that graduates leave college with, that they are getting a huge benefit, that they are getting scholarships and that this stuff is paid for. 
schools are really trying to figure out ways to help. I think it's very frustrating from a fan standpoint to see schools, you know, turn on ESPN and they're marketing um, Notre Dame, Florida State, and they're just showing these guys and highlights of these players and and they're using them for promotional purposes, but they can't get paid. So the question, though, is, you know, I don't know how you set up a system of payment. You know, the quarterback is going to be more marketable or profitable, but then so does that mean the defensive lineman doesn't get paid or yeah. you know like how how do you determine that um what do you do with other non-revenue sports um olympic sports the smaller sports um you've got title nine considerations i i do think there could be an area where players would be able to if they sign autographs um you know to m- maybe mm-hmm. essentially dealing with like name image and likeness stuff that yeah you know they could be paid for autographs or things of that nature but uh, you know i don't know i just feel like People love to say that athletes should get paid, but the logistics of it are a little confusing because you'd have to figure out, you know, you wouldn't want it to affect recruiting where you could say the boosters are allowed to pay players. So then it's like, okay, $300,000 and you'll go to Ole Miss. And (laughs) you don't want... So like, there's just so many little parts like that. If someone came up with a great system of how to do it, I would totally support it. I just haven't seen that yet. Yeah, well, I think that you bring up the good point that on the surface, with a gut check, it sort of seems unfair that the NCAA makes a ton of money off of these players, that the colleges make a ton of money off of these players. But then when you actually try to get into the details of how this would actually work, it would be a lot harder in practice than maybe in theory. But I still think it's sort of a worthy debate to be having. And another element of that debate is the salaries and the stature of the coaches. So you have coaches who are being paid, you know, some some of them millions of dollars. But especially at public universities, you know, in many states, these coaches are the highest paid public employee in the state, including the governor and, and things like that. So in terms of coaching salaries, do you think that the current structure is fair? Or to put it another way, do you think that these schools are getting kind of enough of a return on investment for the sky high figures that their coaches are making? Well, I, I don't think anyone would love to be paying these coaches millions of dollars. I don't, I don't think that it's a great look for schools, again, that are supposed to be about student athletes. But the way that television contracts have just kind of exploded and there's so much money in college sports now, it's sort of a natural progression. I mean, I think it's ridiculous, the amount of money to coach sport. But if you think about it, all of these coaches, you know, they are – for a lot of these schools, athletics is the front door for these universities. I mean, there's all sorts of studies done. I remember working on a story about VCU and Butler and how much their final four runs increased admissions and donations. And there are just so many ways that athletics contribute to the branding and the building, the marketability and fundraising and all of that for all of these schools that people will argue, you know, a coach deserves to be paid a lot of money. Um, you know, and one thing that we're seeing, especially this season, there have been already, there's already eight vacancies um, at the FBS level for head coaches and a lot of mid-season firings. Um, I think we're up to the same number of mid-season firings that like the last three years combined had. And it's this pressure. It's like this super high risk, high reward, super high reward, obviously, if you're making $5 million a year yeah. of coaching where you are super scrutinized and you are responsible for every player on your roster, right? So if you have a string of DUIs or whatever else under your watch, it's all ultimately up to you. Um, if you're getting blown out by a rival and everyone's upset, like, you, you know, like there's just so many things that um, are scrutinized and coaches, you know, used to be able to say like, okay, you get like, you know, three, four or five years to kind of turn things around. And now 
we're not seeing that as much because again, it's so, there's so much money at stake that you like have to be good and it has to be working and you have to have the right coach. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's just such a strange dynamic with, with the players not being paid salaries. But if you think about it, like, so college athletics brings in so much money and where is the money going? It's going to coaches' salaries. It's going to facilities. You know, I, it, it, that's where it can go because it can't go to the players directly. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it's just such a strange dynamic there. And it's outrageous, of course. But it's not slowing because there's only more money than ever in the sport. And TV contracts are not going away. And it's just these coaches just become the face of the program, face of the school. I just I can't see it slow down. Yeah, well, you're... You're literally reading our mind because the next thing we were going to ask is about all of these mid-season coaching changes. And there have been some like really big name ones this year um, with Jerry Kill retiring from Minnesota, Randy Edsel from Maryland, Al Gordon, Steve Spurrier, Steve Sarkeesian, like so many huge names in the headlines. At least it seems like this is an increase over previous years. And I'm just like, curious as I'm reading these things whether or not I mean obviously some of them left for different reasons but some were because their teams were losing and is it really better for a team to have a coaching change mid-season if things aren't going well or do you think that having them ride out the season and then making a change is the better move so that you have some of that continuity throughout yeah I personally I mean some of these situations like Steve Sarkeesian and the off-field behavior um, you know, that had to happen. And Jerry Kill, right. you know, his health was a concern that had health. to happen. But yeah. right, like Al, Al Golden at Miami and Randy Edsel are perfect examples of just like not playing well, losing, and that's why they're being fired. And I don't like midseason coaching. I have been having this argument with my editor for weeks. I'm like, <laughs> I don't see the point. I don't see the point. What are they doing? I know you get a jump on like vetting your coaching candidates, but hey, everyone's still in season. Like you're not really getting a jump. I mean, if yeah. you want a coach that's like not coaching this year and doing TV, then yes, maybe you have a jump and you can get him. But these aren't guys I don't think that the school is going to ultimately hire. So I would rather them just ride out the season. I think it's kind of embarrassing sometimes for some of the coaches. It was a poor Randy Edsel. I mean, there was a report out before the game saying he's going to be fired next week after the Ohio State game. And then that's what happened. Yeah. But, you know, that, that's out there for a week. And that's – it's just not handled well. But but so here's the devil's advocate. Here's why people tell me that they do it. Again, yes, you get an early jump on vetting candidates and finding a replacement. Like especially this year, there's going to be a lot of openings. Maybe that will help. Who knows? Yeah. And two, you know, athletic directors are under a lot of pressure, right? And it feels, you know, you've got potentially, you know, maybe this is the time of year where people are thinking about renewing tickets for next year or they're really just Mm. disillusioned with the direction of the program. So you do it to show that you're making a change and progress is coming and you're going to get a guy and then there's some buzz for the rest of the season about who do you think we're going to get? Who do you think we're going to get? I don't buy that that is a good enough reason to do this. Yeah, I mean, I think... It would be one thing if, you know, you switched a coach, but the coach that you brought in was the coach that you expected to then lead the team for the foreseeable future into the next couple seasons, whatever. But it really sounds like instead they're having an interim coach while they figure out who they want their real head coach to be. So the advantage of like getting extra time for your players to be with a new coach, they're not really giving that to the players or the team either if they're just going to be switching out the interim coach anyway. Right, exactly. Um, Well, this also brings up an interesting dynamic that exists in college sports, but not in the pros, which is the relationship between 
coaches and athletic directors at different schools. So give us a little background on sort of what's the dynamic between an athletic director and a coach? Why does an athletic director exist? Why is there so much influence of the athletic director? And, you know, what what do you think about this relationship and its influence on how teams can play day to day. Yeah, well, it's interesting because the kind of the role of athletic director has changed um, over the course of decades. And, you know, now it's, you're responsible ultimately for um, hiring your head coaches, although a lot of people are using search firms these days. There are definitely some athletic directors who are like, my job is to hire the coach. I'm doing it myself. (laughs) But you're also like, you're obviously in charge of fundraising and marketing. You oversee all of that. You have a huge staff, your athletic department. You know, there's definitely a CEO element to the job. And that's why Texas hired Steve Patterson and Michigan hired Dave Brandon. Mm -hmm. And neither worked out. And I actually wrote about this recently because I just think that there are a lot of people who come up through athletic departments, which I think is a completely unique experience versus a pro team front office or anything related to pros because right. in the pro sports world it's definitely bottom line it's it's saving money it's this and that but at college there's so many weird little areas and and I forget um, who explained it to me this way but it's sort of like landmines that you have to navigate tradition is so important and the, again the idea that coaches are making millions of dollars and and these athletic departments are making so much money so you know in Texas, uh, there was a report out there that Texas was hosting, you know, a 25th anniversary team. And, um, you know, they tried to charge the p- former players $25 each to, like, pay for just lighting up the stadium that night. Wow, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's ridiculous. And, yeah. and you don't do that because you're making billions of dollars. It's not about nickel and diming everyone and the final profit margin in college sports. Because there's there's things like that that just don't sit right when – it's millions and billions of dollars involved in this industry. So for Michigan to raise student ticket prices, just so many little tweaks that all add up because there's elements of history and the ties that people have to these schools because they went there and grew up rooting for that. It's, It's so different than pro sports. So athletic directors have to navigate all of that. I think that's kind of where the role is and where some of the roadblocks can be. I mean, yeah, and we definitely saw that with Michigan. I feel like the entire Michigan fan base took a collective sigh of relief with the new athletic director and head coach yes. hiring this year. All right, but to get a little bit more into the nitty-gritty, this year we've seen a lot of mini-controversies over targeting calls in college football. And for those who don't know, targeting is basically any hit above the shoulder on a defenseless player. And this comes with an automatic ejection and a 15-yard penalty. But the rule has changed over the past few years, and it seems like there's so many reviews and so many contested calls where people are really unhappy that their player just got ejected when they don't think it actually was targeting. So can you just tell us a little bit of what you think about this rule and how it's changed over the last few years? Um, I think it's been applied in a very inconsistent way, which has confused a lot of people about what actually targeting is. Um, I mean, we've seen it from like what literally uh, this past weekend looks like a straight up tackle. like making a tackle, doing your job. And then this ends with like a suspension as well. You know, so you're missing key games um, or key parts of big games and it might be a questionable call. So I think the incentive there is right. You don't want head-to-head hits. You don't want people leading with their head. The intentions are good. You're trying to discourage certain behavior, but it's just being applied so inconsistently that I think they're going to have to take a look at it. So maybe there's a way to at least have like an appeal process to take off that like 
it's going to affect the next, the first half of next game too. You know that part. Well, Definitely. yet yet another thing that the NCAA has just got to work through. I don't, I yep. do not envy whoever has to be at the head of these decisions. So okay, so backing up a little bit, we've sort of gotten into some of the, as Bryn said, the nitty gritty of of college football, but. We're what about like halfway through the season ish? Um, a little so bit over. There's a there's a good sample we would say. Yeah. So Nicole, what do you think so far have been the most interesting storylines, and who are the surprise contenders for the playoffs, or who do you think has really failed expectations? And do you have any predictions for who's going to make the playoffs? The playoff teams, if I had to guess now, and I'm going to project, so I'm going to guess that Clemson yes. goes undefeated <laughs> of the way. Clemson's in. I'm going to guess that – so I think Ohio State will have its hands full with Michigan, but I think Ohio State wins. So Ohio, Ohio State goes undefeated and then beats Iowa in the Big Ten championship game, gets in. I think Stanford runs the table, beats Notre Dame at the end of the season, wins the Pac-12 championship, gets in. And then I would say that – so there's a way that the SEC will implode and not get a team in it, and that would probably be if – Ole Miss wins out because Ole Miss beat Alabama and already has two losses. So if Ole Miss wins out and then beats Florida in the championship game, I'm not necessarily sold on Ole Miss. So that, they might not get in. But I actually think the more likely scenario is that the Big 12 beats itself. Like each, each of those top teams kind of beat each other. And then they don't get in again. And you have like LSU or Florida get in from the SEC. So that's my projection. And I also think that Leonard Fournette – and Trevon Boykin will be the two, uh, the top two for the Heisman. Awesome. Oh my gosh, you make me love college football so much. Like literally <laughs> anything can happen. It's never dull. Okay, so you mentioned some about the Heisman Trophy, which is awarded to the most outstanding player in college football every year. Can you give us a little bit of background on how the Heisman Trophy is awarded? And why some people think that the voting is biased, either by position or by age. It's usually, you know, a running back or a quarterback, usually mm-hmm. junior, senior level, senior level, typically, or by region. You know, there are all these things at play. And I think it it gets a lot of conversation going about who's biased toward what and which players are more likely to win the Heisman, even if they're not, you know, necessarily regarded as the best all around. So if you could give us a little bit of background on that and some of the factors that are coming into play there. That would be Yeah, great. I'm I'm actually I'm actually a Heisman voter, which is pretty cool. That is and cool. It, That's so cool. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's the votes are distributed geographically because, you know, I think there there are some regional biases. I mean, if you cover the SEC, if you're a beat writer, you're paying more attention to the SEC teams and maybe you're not watching Christian McCaffrey at Stanford who's playing insane, but also, again, like if you have insomnia, you get to see him because he plays really late. So people have been missing his outstanding season. He's a Heisman contender. There's a consensus on, like, there's there's top three, and then there's a huge drop-off, and three three finalists come to New York for the ceremony where they announce the winner. Uh, you know, it's interesting. So now the, the conventional wisdom is that if you have an insane wide receiver or even, like, a crazy you know, defensive back or someone who like someone out of that quarterback running back mold and you want them not not like you want them to be a Heisman contender, but like 
the only way to become one is if you also do special teams and you're like a returner and you have a couple touchdowns. Basically, you need to touch the ball more because that's the issue. Like the quarterback <laughs> touches the ball every single snap. Yeah. So they have opportunities. And this yeah. is an era of like increased offenses. So offenses in general are scoring a lot more points, piling up insane yardage. So quarterbacks have these ridiculous stat lines. And we've seen a lot of running backs rushing for over 2,000 yards in a season and all of these also insane stats. So that's why those positions have really, you know, emerged as kind of, and, and not even running backs that much. It's, it's quarterbacks who are, you know, consistently winning this award. In terms of age, um, you're right that it definitely tends to skew older. But, you know, we did have Johnny Menzel and Jameis Winston. Yeah. Uh, they won as uh, redshirt freshmen. You know, I think that, that the age thing is, is always a thing. I mean, Tim Tebow was the first sophomore to win it, which yeah. is now seems, you know, quaint. So, so I think that part's going away. I think, like I said, the regional voting bias is definitely true, especially if you're a beat writer. You're at a game. You're not able to watch all the other teams play or all the other star players play. Yeah. You can watch some highlights, but that's about it. So... You know, I, I'm national, so I have to watch everything. That's why it's geographical based for the and the votes are distributed that way, so that it sort of hopefully goes against that, and you have enough people to cover the Pac-12 voting and this and that. So that's yeah. kind of how it works, um, and that's kind of the rundown. And yes, it's super cool to be like, yeah, I, I get to vote for the Eisman, <laughs> like just the coolest. That's award, awesome. You know? <laughs> well, it's like the Academy Awards. Like, who's who is voting for everybody? I mean, I'm glad that we've identified you, but, <laughs> you know, like, Maybe who else is the out there? <laughs> All right. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit because I think part of what's also really interesting about you and your work is that you are a young woman uh, working in sports, which is very male dominated. And we've on this show, it's something that we care about a lot and we think about a lot and we talk about a lot. <laughs> and so I wanted to ask you kind of about being a young woman in journalism, especially in our sort of 24 hour news cycle, because I know that you're very active on Twitter. So I want to know if you sort of feel compelled to be there. Like, do you think that it's part of your job as expected? Or do you feel like there are real benefits to being in that kind of community? I just wanted to know, first, your take on being a woman in sports journalism and how social media, especially any um, sort of dark side of social media stuff, influences your job and, and how you approach your job. Well, you know, I get asked a lot about being a woman in my position in my field because, you know, it is, it is different. And I think, you know, I've related a lot to other women in male-dominated fields like tech. You know, I've, I've had similar conversations, but it's kind of like everyone I interact with for work is male. I mean, the, the players I cover, the coaches I cover, my colleagues, fans, if I interact with them. And, you know, like basically, you know, I, a female coworker put it this way, like, she's married and has two kids. And she was like, my husband has to be like, totally okay with the fact that like men are calling and texting me all the time. Like they're <laughs> texting me at 10 PM, you know, and it's a source or whatever. And so it's sort of like that. I mean, you go on the road and I, you know, I don't think about it often, but it's sort of like, okay, we're all out to dinner with a bunch of writers in New Orleans and it's really far down Bourbon street and I'm tired. I'm ready to go, but I'm not really comfortable walking all the way home by myself. And like just things like that, that aren't quite the same for male colleagues I think about all the time I think about what I'm wearing I think about um, how I'm asking a player coach for their phone number the tone I'm using when I'm texting them the times I'm texting or calling little things like that that I've yeah. mentioned this to male colleagues and they literally are like 
they're staring at me blankly. They're like, I never think about any of that. That's insane. You think about all that stuff every day. And I'm like, well, personally, it shows that you don't care about what you're wearing. But yes, that's the thing, you know. <laughs> and um, so, so there's like a lot of kind of the, the stuff on the periphery that helps. You know, I know, I know there's some women who are like, I hate that people say, you know, dress better so you don't get, you know, maybe sexually harassed or comments made or suggestive, whatever. And I'm like, well, you know what? I agree that women should be able to wear whatever they want. But I just tell you by wearing, by dressing the way I dress and kind of overdressing, tending to overdress um, mm-hmm. and dress more professionally or wear a dress to an event that maybe someone else is wearing cargo shorts and a polo, yeah. you know, th- these things help me do my job and be treated with professionalism and respect. I'm friends with Amelia Reyna, who wrote that story for the Minnesota uh, Star Tribune about, you know, inappropriate behavior by Norwood Teague, the athletic director there. And, yeah. you know, I think a lot of women in sports media have similar stories. And um, a lot of times it, they're not public because, but they are told between us, you know, so you're told like who do maybe you know, avoid or whatever. But, you know, they're not public because, you know, like, like Amelia, I mean, it's so brave of what she did. And, and it was great because I think it really opened a lot of eyes to how women can be treated in these jobs by people who clearly don't understand journalists yeah. and journalism jobs. But also, like, now, poor Amelia, every time someone Googles her, that stuff comes up. Yeah. And like, that's, that's kind of the deterrent for more of the stuff coming out publicly with names on it, just that, you know, you don't only want to be known for that. So there's there's a lot going on. There are a lot of issues. But as you do it more and more, you kind of come up with coping techniques or kind of a quick, you know, a text back to someone who's stepped over the line. You know, if someone says, oh, I think you're really hot, you know, and you're like, crap, like, really, this is happening, like, with this assistant coach that I think I'm building a relationship with. Yeah. So then you respond back. Um, I trust that that won't affect our professional relationship, you know, and that tone and everything kind of shifts after that. And so you come up with ways to cope and handle these situations as they go. But the actual job itself, I mean, it's, it's amazing. These players have grown up with women interviewing them. And yeah. it's yeah. not weird. You know, the players are respectful. There's none of that with them. And coaches, too. I mean, I have some great, great relationships with coaches. And they don't treat me any differently than the men. They totally respect me. I, I do think the benefits, you know, sometimes I think of different kind of human interest angles that I think some of the men do who think, you know, they're got to be so macho and only write about X's and O's or just <laughs> maybe they're just not as creative or they don't ask like that one extra question behind like, you know, okay, so, you know, he's close to his mom, but why? Like, did something happen? Is there like some pivotal, you know, experience that this person went through and different yeah. things like that that I think help. And I think sometimes when you're working on a human interest story, um, I think sometimes some of these male players open up more to a woman. So that's my long-winded thing about kind of, you know, working in a male dominated field and, and social media is pretty terrible. I will say, um, I used to like Twitter a lot more. I think it's gotten more negative and snarky and I try not to do that. I try not to take cheap shots at people, um, that I cover, that I deal with. I think, I think a lot of people do that and I think it's unfair. I think you should always assume that the people you're writing about can read your tweets. A lot of them do and, you know, treat people with respect, especially college athletes again who are not getting paid but you know I get it I get a ton of it what's frustrating for me being a woman tweeting about sports is that there's a presumption that I don't know it if I'm wrong about something if I if I put out an opinion I get like you know go back to the kitchen or you're a girl you don't know anything about sports blah 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 versus if my colleague like Stu Mandel Fox Sports if he tweets the same thing his his mentions, his responses back are about the content of the tweet, not about his gender. Yeah. And so that is that is a big difference. That is frustrating. And, and over the last couple of years, I've really t- scaled back opinionated commentary. 
Uh, I've scaled back personal type tweets. I don't need to get a bunch of mentions of people telling me like, I'm an idiot. Or, you know, I, I honestly don't always tweet about, um, you know, sexual assault cases and stuff. I tweeted something about Christine Brennan wrote a fantastic column about Greg Hardy yeah. and about the questions he was getting and just his inane responses to them. And I tweeted it out for about three days because it got, let's say, like 100 retweets. So that means it's going into people's feeds who don't follow me because I think people who follow me understand I'm a woman tweeting about sports and you obviously chose to follow me. Right. But when it kind of gains a little steam and goes outside of that, then I got just some nasty responses. People just, the responses to stuff about like Jameis Winston, Greg Hardy, and like situated cases that involve sexual assault or rape, these people are just, I mean, obviously in their minds, they're making some sort of incredible justification for these people. And they <laughs> take it out with, with like literally like threats about sexual assault and rape and like awful comments and vulgar language. And they, they take that out on the people who tweet about it, the women who tweet about that. And so, you know, it's a lot of blocking and muting, but it still gets to you and it's still frustrating. You wish your skin was a little thicker, but I have to be on Twitter for my job. I mean, I have to be, I have to have a Facebook page for my job, but if I didn't, you know, I would definitely scale back social media use just because rarely is it positive and so often is it negative yeah. and will bother me and, you know, put me in a bad mood for a few hours. So it's it's tough. It just really sounds like both in your comments more generally about being a woman in sports journalism and then specifically on social media, it just sounds like there's so much more energy that it takes for women to do their jobs than it takes for yes. men because of all of the extra things that you have to be watching out for. Yes, I would agree. Um, I, I think it's it's part of it. I mean, you know, we sign up and my job is I get to go cover great sporting events and write about people and have access and like do all these awesome things. But you're right. Like on a daily basis, there are probably my like internal mental checklist of things that I'm doing or dealing with is different than a male colleague's. And, and I talk to them about it and they're always like really supportive and insightful. And, you know, I mean, when Condoleezza Rice was named to the playoff committee, and there was that backlash to her and then, oh, she never put her finger in the dirt, blah, 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 blah. I mean, that's essentially like the same thing that female sports writers get. Like, oh, how could you cover college football? You don't even know. And there's like an assumed knowledge that this like 300 pound sloppy sports writer next to me because he's a male and has never played football in his life. But there's an assumed knowledge. He gets it because he's male totally. or whatever. So the assumption right. is I have to prove it. But now, like when the Condoleezza Rice thing happened, a lot of my national male national colleagues wrote fantastic columns just obliterating all of these people who like were criticizing the committee for putting her on it or that she didn't know football and it was really great and I was texting with them and they were just so supportive and they didn't even that was their natural reaction because they are aware of enough of this stuff which is great and it's great when there's colleagues and editors and people that support you but you're right I mean I think the best way to put it is yes like there's a different energy level required to do my job than a male colleague who has the exact same job title. Yeah. Yeah. Well, another woman who we love in sports media is Katie Nolan. Recently on her podcast, she had Rachel Nichols on and she asked Rachel if she ever gets nervous asking important, powerful people the tough questions. And Rachel's answer, which I loved, is that she said she's never nervous if she asks a fair question. So she always asks mm. fair questions. What's your approach to asking important people tough questions, especially as a young woman dealing with coaches and athletic directors and mostly exclusively older, older established yeah. men? 
sometimes it's hard to build sources or relationships with people who are a lot older like that too for just, you know, things to have in common or things in conversation. But again, yeah, I don't, I don't shy away from asking tough questions or digging into court records or whatever for, for some of these people because of my age. I think, you know, I've been in this profession in this position in a national outlet for so long that I don't really think about that. Um, and I often get told by colleagues, you feel like you're so much older. And I'm, that's like the greatest compliment I can receive. I completely agree with Rachel. I mean, if you're not, and, and all these people, you know, you're hoping that you have relationships with people or reputation throughout the, the sports world. And if they know that you're fair and you don't, you're not there to write a gotcha story or pull somebody's you know, you're trying to get them to say something off the record and then you're going to like burn that bridge and use it or try to get them to say something salacious. Like I don't do that. And also like depending on the story, you know, and someone's telling you something and they didn't say it was off the record and it's not particularly like important to the story. It wasn't like something like an injury, something you got to report right then. And then you're like, by the way, like you, you didn't say this was off the record and you kind of have a conversation they don't want it and you kind of just build trust from there. And you mm -hmm. also hope that people can see when you're working on stories about people they know or features or that, that, that you've handled things fairly. Then I think when you ask them a tough question, they respect you and they know you're not trying to do it just to get a headline or you're not going to write some sort of slant. You didn't already write, figure out the angle of the story you're writing before you started. Well, I also love your comment you made a little bit earlier about like this generation of players has never not known women around yeah. them professionally asking them questions. So... And that sort of echoes what some of the women that we had on a couple episodes ago that they were discussing, like they feel like they're the second or third generation of women in their careers and that going forward, there are just going to be more women and it will pan out more evenly. Yeah, exactly. I, and so I think all of that stuff helps, you know, and soon this generation of players, they'll be the next generation of managers and coaches and athletic yeah. directors and just sort of builds and builds and just becomes way more of uh, it's not a separate thing. It's yeah. just, this is our collection of reporters. It's not, here are the female reporters. Well, man, I love ending on a note of hope. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's end on a positive note. <laughs> yeah. Well, Nicole, thank you so, so much for joining us. This was such a great conversation. And as we say on the show, good game, Nicole. Oh, good game. <laughs> high five, virtual high five. High fives, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Nicole. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Wow. Nicole is so great. She's my new lady crush. <laughs> yeah, she's the best. <laughs> and after the break, we're going to talk about another great lady with our next Fierce Lady segment. Welcome back. So uh, from one fierce lady to another, we just finished up with Nicole, who is this week's fierce lady, Bryn. Well, our fierce lady of this week proves that you don't have to be a big person to be a giant in your sport. Um, <laughs> we're talking about Simone. I know I'm killing it with the segues today. I love it. <laughs> so Simone Biles is four foot nine. She's 18 years old, and she just became the first woman to win three consecutive titles at the World Gymnastics Championships last Thursday. She hasn't lost a meet since her debut in 2013, and she's literally so dominant that the other gymnasts on um, her team have said that officials need to create a separate division for her because she's just so far and away the best. 
So last Thursday, even though she stepped out of bounds on her floor routine and she almost fell off the balance beam, (gasps) she went on to win the all-around gold at the World Championships, which is the third time in the last three years. And even with those mistakes, she won by the largest margin thus far. Damn. So it's unbelievable. Um, And she's breaking all kinds of records. She has now the most career gold medals at the World Gymnastics Championships with 10 gold medals. And that breaks not, not only the U.S. record for that, but the international record for career gold medals at the World Gymnastics Championship. So as she heads into the Olympics next year, she's definitely going to be regarded as one of the favorites, if not the favorite, um, to continue her unbeaten global run with an Olympic gold, which would be awesome to see. Also, she's like, she's having a lot of fun with it, which I love reading about. You know, she's like, as gym- as gymnasts typically are, she's adorable and peppy, and she is known for incorporating nods and winks to the crowd in oh, her routines. Man. A wink! Which is just adorable. <laughs> so, fierce lady of the week, Simone Biles, killing it. All right, well, can't, we'll keep an eye on her in Rio, and uh, Bryn, why don't you tell our lovely listeners where they can uh, find us? Sure thing. Um, we are on Facebook at Not Your Boyfriend Sports Show. You can tweet us at NYBF Sports. Email us at nybfsports at gmail.com. Our episodes will be on iTunes and Stitcher and maybe Google Play when they start letting you listen to podcasts. So uh, we're teasing it. Stay so. tuned for that. All right. Well, I think that wraps it up for today and this week and this episode. So, uh, Bryn, as always, good game. Good game, babe.